Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 7 and 25 through 28, and chapter 50, 16 through 20. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there have been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry them back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God, your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, the word of the Lord. You know, uh, every good story has a tension that inevitably builds to a climactic moment. That's what makes great stories. Uh, A moment of a great reveal, a twist in the story. It's when Darth Vader reveals that he's Luke's father. It's when the boy in the sixth sense reveals that he sees dead people. It's when Samwise Gamgee, the real hero of the Lord of the Rings, throws Frodo up onto his back and carries him up Mount Doom. These uh, climactic events are climactic uh, and moving because of the journey that led to that moment. That was uh, up until that point, that twist, the journey was so fraught with uncertainty, uh, with unanswered questions that now turn so that resolution to all that tension is now in sight. We're captivated by those moments. Now, over the last 20 weeks or so, we've actually been building to some final moments in the book of Genesis. Next week, we're going to consider uh, the final climactic scene for the whole book, which was uh, the establishment of this long-promised nation that would bless the world. But this week, we look at the climactic moment in a mini-saga that we've considered over the last several weeks, Uh, particularly in the story of Joseph. So much of the last several weeks has created a lot of tension that we just heard read in this passage. It's a a moment of a a great reveal, a twist in the story. And in particular, it's a moment that leads to an unexpected reconciliation of those that are involved. That's what I want to focus on today. 
this unexpected reconciliation, uh, and I want to look at it as a climactic event, that it's, it ought to be what all this tension is driving us toward, that moment of reconciliation. And so to look at this, this moment and to understand why we tend to be so captivated by moments like these, uh, I want to take a look at three things. I want to take a look at, well, what is reconciliation? Why do we need reconciliation? And then finally, how do we receive reconciliation? Okay, so first, what is it? Uh, as always, we need to get caught up a little bit in the story. If you remember, Joseph's story uh, begins essentially with him having this selfish and unwise father whose favoritism and preference of his young son, Joseph, caused two things. Uh, the first thing that it caused is that uh, it created a, a spoiled and entitled child in Joseph. Uh, but the second thing that it did is it destroyed the family by driving wedges between Joseph and his brothers, uh, which fueled this hatred that his brothers had for him. And out of their hatred, they sell Joseph into enslavement in Egypt. However, Joseph, through the course of many events and God's sovereignty, he is raised up to great authority because he's got this ability to interpret dreams. Eventually, he earns the favor of Pharaoh as a result of this gift in interpreting dreams, and as a result of that favor, he becomes the second in command in all of Egypt. He's much like a prime minister of the land at the time. It's really a, a fascinating story of going from being enslaved to now becoming a great ruler. Now, in his role as essentially prime minister of Egypt, he is charged with preparing the region for a great famine that's coming. Uh, he's, in particular, to institute the necessary plan to ensure the survival of the people. This famine impacted the entire region, including not just Egypt, but including uh, Joseph's homeland. And so as a result of that, this widespread famine, his long-lost family, and in particular his brothers, are suffering as a result of this famine. And so, like a lot of other people in the region, they go to the superpower of the day, which is Egypt, seeking assistance, seeking relief and help. Eventually, those brothers would end up before Joseph, seeking that help. Now, it's been a really long time since they have all seen each other. Uh, we know that Joseph was probably about 17 when he was sold and ended up in Potiphar's house. Uh, and based on that, we can estimate, based on various other things that happen throughout the narrative, that Joseph is probably about 40 years old when his brothers finally come back and, and they see him. So a lot of time and many events have taken place since they saw each other last. The last time they saw Joseph, he was crying out for mercy in a pit that they'd thrown him in. As you could imagine, now he looks very different. They, however probably look mostly the same, just older. So as you can imagine, Joseph, he recognizes his brothers immediately, and they have no idea who he is. Right? That's kind of what's happened now leading up to where we are. And it's here at this point in the story where after all that takes place, we see this climactic event, this big reveal, the twist in the story. Joseph here reveals to his brothers who he is. And you can just picture that scene. I mean, you can imagine the kinds of feelings that would come for both, uh, you know, the brothers, who you'd imagine, I'm sure, were just an absolute shock. The story uh, unfolds, you can see that there's fear that they have, as well as a host of other emotions I'm sure they're experiencing. But even more, you can imagine 
and consider what Joseph must have been processing and feeling as a result of his brother's coming. I mean, consider the journey that Joseph's been on as a result of these people who are right now in front of him. I mean, over and over again in his story, he has undeservedly suffered. He's had offense after offense thrust upon him as a result of what they did. I mean, it starts with, uh, you know, his father's poor parenting, but then he's abused by his brothers. And then out of jealousy, they decide to, of course, sell him off. Then he ends up in Potiphar's home, and being in Potiphar's home, as we took a look at last week, he's lied about in Potiphar's home, which then leads him to be thrown into prison. I mean, this guy, over and over again, has been victimized. And it all started with his family. And amidst all that suffering, we would expect, I would imagine, particular feelings to come along the way. For many of us, if we were in a similar kind of situation, this would drive us toward great despair or bitterness or anger. And frankly, who would blame him for having such emotions? Joseph has been uh, horrifically sinned against by these men standing before him. And so the question becomes, how should he respond to them? Well, he's got one of two options, as far as I can tell. The first option is to give his brothers what they rightly deserve, which in this case is at best he gives them nothing, and at worst he gives them punishment. What I mean by that is Joseph is in this position of great authority. Um, They are there because they need help. If he does not give them food, they are going to starve and die. So at best, he has the authority to deny them food, and they certainly don't deserve that. But at worst, He's also got the authority to not just deny them food. He's also got the authority to crush them. In uh, chapter 44, you can see that the brothers understand just how much power Joseph has and what that authority could do to them. And that fear that they had of Joseph was actually before they knew that he was their brother. So now that they know who exactly he is, you can imagine all the more fear must be drumming up because he really did have the power to crush them. Joseph had every right as far as we could tell and as far as we would assume to be appropriate to let them suffer. He owed them nothing. And that would be the intuitive response, I think, for most of us. It would be what we would expect. It's how we expect the world to respond, how we may actually desire to respond. But Joseph's response is actually not the intuitive response. Instead, his response is a counterintuitive one, which makes that climactic moment all the more uh, impacting. So how does he respond? Well, the other way that he could respond is, of course, the way he does. What does he do? Look at verse 4, starting in verse 4. This is what it says. If you want to throw that up, that'd be great. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. There's your big reveal. And now, do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Interesting. When Joseph here is extending great mercy to his brothers, he doesn't retaliate against them, but actually encourages them not to be angry with themselves. A very counterintuitive response to all all that's taken place thus far. And if you read more of the story, you will see the, ex- the incredible extension of forgiveness from Joseph. Now, why is that significant? Because when we consider the essence of reconciliation, remember where we are right now, what is reconciliation? When we consider the essence of reg- uh, reconciliation, 
we must see what it actually requires. Reconciliation first acknowledges wrong that has been done. Right? Joseph here is acknowledging what they did. You know, true reconciliation doesn't happen by ignoring what's taken place. Instead, we must first confront what has happened. We need to name it. Reconciliation requires an acknowledgement. There's no way of pursuing it without addressing the harm that's been caused. But reconciliation also cannot occur apart from this kind of, this extension of mercy and forgiveness from the one who was offended to the offenders. All of this is really crucial in understanding reconciliation. It needs to be acknowledging that which has broken down, the sin, the brokenness that, that uh, exists. And then it requires this counterintuitive response. In response to that brokenness, to extend mercy and grace and love and forgiveness to the one who did the offending. Now, having said all of that, I recognize that's asking a lot. Particularly as we think about the various ways that relationships can break down and the reasons why they break down, that's asking a lot. To extend that kind of mercy and forgiveness, even after the wrong has been acknowledged, can be very difficult to actually do and pursue. And so if we're going to pursue reconciliation, we need to understand why it's even a valuable thing to pursue. Because if we don't see the value of it, then there's really not going to be anything that drives us toward it. We will just go with that intuitive response of being angry, bitter, maybe even falling into despair. But if we can see the beauty of reconciliation, we might be able to find the power to achieve it. So why do we need reconciliation? Uh, like I said, let's be real for just for a second. It can be very difficult to see why we need reconciliation, especially when, when we're in the midst of broken down relationship. But understanding why we need it is best understood by looking at those who are actually impacted by unreconciled relationships. There are three groups of people, again, as far as I can tell, that are often impacted when a lack of reconciliation exists. Here's those three groups. The person who has been offended, the offender, and those that we'll call collateral damage. Okay? Those three groups all are going to experience and be impacted by unrecon unreconciled relationships. Let me explain to you what I mean. Let's look at those three groups. First, consider those that have been offended. In other words, those that have, that have been hurt by others. When there is a breakdown of relationships because of someone's wrongdoing, the offended party, right, the one who has been hurt, uh, can often respond in a couple of ways. And depending on how they respond, it usually says something about how they're processing this notion of reconciliation. One way, if we have been hurt, we've been the one that hurt, one reaction that we can have is to seek vengeance, which might feel very justified. Joseph here had every right to respond that way. And for many of us, uh, we, we might not have the power, like Joseph, to actually exact our vengeance on someone, but we desire that vengeance. And we might very well burn with that kind of vengeance. And by that, I don't mean like a, a righteous justice, desiring justice to come. Justice is good. What I mean is that we can burn with this hatred, this desire for them to suffer as we have suffered. And that kind of hatred can very easily consume us and makes forgiveness almost impossible. And frankly, for Joseph, 
Who would blame him if he felt that way and responded accordingly? But in the end, again, Joseph being the one that's hurt, that lack of forgiveness, I think he recognizes, is never going to leave him whole. Right? A lack of reconciliation, a, a lack of forgiveness, never leaves the one who has been offended whole. Un unreconciled relationships leave the wounds caused by others open and festering. And we experience the pain of that brokenness over and over again. Look at the, uh, some of this is in our passage, but you see this throughout Joseph's narrative. Joseph, again, the one who has been offended, repeatedly, as he interacts with his brothers or thinks about his brothers, it tells us time and time again that he weeps. In chapter 42, in chapter 45, twice, or three times rather in chapter 45, Joseph is openly weeping as he thinks about or interacts with his brothers because it's ripping open these deep wounds that obviously never healed. You know, if, if you are here and you've been, the broke, or you've been the victim of some broken relationship, you know you'll, you'll go through seasons of rehashing those painful moments that maybe often can lead to the same kinds of tears that Joseph is experiencing now. Even if you think that you've moved on, right, there will still come times when we will experience the rawness of that brokenness. And what I find fascinating about Joseph here, Joseph did all right for himself, all things considered. Right? He overcame painful circumstances. Yet the sight of his brothers reveals that the brokenness very much still remains in him. And the point is that a lack of forgiveness and maybe even a desire for vengeance, it's not going to be what leads to wholeness. Because even in forgiveness, there will be moments of tears when remembering the pain comes. But anger and hatred will almost never remove the pain, but only be salt on those wounds. So the offended in unreconciled relationships is going to feel some kind of brokenness as a result of that continued fracture in relationship. The second group of people that we see here in our passage that are impacted by unreconciled relationships are also the offenders, right? So the people that have hurt others. Uh, those people often have similar options when they need to respond to the unreconciled relationship. Some will, and I think this might be very familiar, but some will seek to justify their actions and be at peace with themselves over how they acted. They really couldn't care less about how they've hurt someone else, and they really have no interest in pursuing uh, forgiveness. Now, as I said before, reconciliation, it cannot take place uh, in that situation because Reconciliation always requires the acknowledgement of wrongdoing. And so in that case, if someone has offended someone else, has hurt someone else, and does not seek uh, reconciliation, does not seek forgiveness, there's no healing that's going to be able to come through that until they acknowledge the error of their ways. And so in that way, the offender is broken. But there's another way that offenders can also find themselves broken in the midst of unrecon unreconciled relationships. Others will realize the errors of their ways and actually seek forgiveness and subsequently put themselves in that very humble position of admitting that they were wrong. But if you've ever been in that position, you know that it can be a very difficult one. And so many people don't engage with that kind of humility and instead they maybe leave things broken. But here's what I find to be interesting about the offenders in our story. Joseph's brothers the offenders. The author describes occasions uh, where they actually are really uh, um, presenting their deep regret for what they've done. 
uh, in chapter 42, uh, verse 22, it says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, <clears throat> and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. I find it interesting that they seem haunted by the day that they sold their brother into enslavement. And for those of us who have been the offender, and you know it, you know that you are haunted by those poor decisions that you've made. We know that we wish that we could go back and we could do things differently. And so because the, unrecon the uh, unreconciled relationship still exists, that brokenness still exists, we're haunted by that day. Even if we desire to seek forgiveness, we're still haunted by our failures. Third group that can often be impacted is, again, what we'll call collateral damage. These are those who are not directly involved, involved in the relationship, relational breakdown, but they're peripheral to the people that have been hurt. There are inevitably people who are impacted and hurt when relationships go bad. Broken relationships rarely impact just those who are directly involved. They almost always hurt those who are closest to those involved as well. As an example, when I uh, get from our story, when describing Jacob's uh, hearing of the news that his son has been alive this whole time, this is what it says. It says that Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry them back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. What does that mean? The spirit of Jacob obviously had been crushed by the loss of his son as a result of the actions of his other sons. We actually see this explained um, later by Joseph as he makes reference to Jacob not being able to handle the prospects of, of losing another son. Obviously, what we're seeing is that Jacob, who's kind of sat a little bit on the periphery of this relational breakdown between Joseph, Joseph and his brothers, what we're seeing here is that there's this deep brokenness that has been in him all of these years. Right? He's been, in a sense, kind of collateral damage to the break, breakdown between Joseph and his brothers. All that to say... The reason reconciliation is needed is because a lack of re reconciliation leaves everyone involved broken in some way. Healing is not going to come to the hurt that, that uh, exists as a result of relational breakdown. Until reconciliation is pursued, everyone stays broken. And throughout the story of Joseph, we see each group in their ongoing brokenness. And where broken relationships exist, where a lack of forgiveness exists, we will see that similar kind of ongoing hurt and pain. Now, in this room, more than likely, there are those of us who uh, maybe fit neatly into one of those three categories. Uh, maybe for many of us, we at times have found ourselves in all three of those categories. You know, some of us are the offended ones who have been hurt by others. And so maybe as a result of the hurt, even as I'm bringing all this up and you think about those relationships, your immediate feeling is that counterintuitive, or that, that uh, intuitive feeling of desiring to seek vengeance. There's a hatred, there's an anger that drives you. And as a result, I hope you can recognize that there's a brokenness that's there. For some of us here, maybe we've been the offenders who either... Uh, 
you know, maybe some of us here have refused to acknowledge our wrongdoing. Right? We've hurt other people, and we aren't going to own up to it. And as a result, continue to create harm as a result of that lack of acknowledgement. But also there's some of us here that are certainly willing to acknowledge that we have failed. But we still find ourselves deeply broken, deeply hurt as a result of our own actions, as a result of our own failures. Some of us, maybe you weren't directly involved in that relational breakdown, whatever it might have been. But because the breakdown exists amongst others, you're feeling the consequences of their lack of reconciliation. And so if that's true, I would imagine all of us find ourselves in one of those categories, or all three. How do we pursue a reconciliation that leads us toward wholeness? How do we uh, find the power to achieve a kind of reconciliation that so often seems completely out of our control to achieve? Well, that finally brings us to our last point, that there is actually power to achieve reconciliation. Uh, this passage, uh, it's not only showing us uh, the need that we have for reconciliation, but also the process and the power to attain it. Uh, to see where Joseph attained his power for forgiveness and grace, we need to look at verses 5 and 7. And there's a couple of things I want to draw out of there. This is what it says. If you want to throw that up, uh, verse, uh, starting in verse 5. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be uh, no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. There are two amazing sources of power for reconciliation here in this passage. First... Notice that Jacob acknowledges the great sovereignty of God in his circumstances. Now, what we see here is Joseph does not say just that God used the bad circumstances to bring me here. Rather, what does he say? He says that God sent me ahead of you. Later on in chapter 50, we saw uh, him put it another way that what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. In other words, God in some way was at work in and through the evil that occurred. I mean, think about the type of person that Joseph has become through the hardship and the pain that he's endured. Joseph has become this, this man that we celebrate all of these years later. He's viewed as, as one of great faith and great compassion and influence. However, all of that came through years of suffering and pain and sorrow, none of which looked like it was ever going to end at points in his life. Joseph's painful circumstances created him into, molded him into a man who is able to handle this moment well because he's recognized the sovereign hand of God on his life through it all. And my friends, there is freedom that comes when we can see the most desperate times of life as moments of God's perfecting grace. And I know the potential depths of that statement. I know that many have suffered deep hurt, deep pain, and I don't ever want to take that lightly. lightly. For, for many, you have every right to desire justice. You have every right to hear the one who has hurt you acknowledge the wrong that they committed against you. But there is also great hope 
in knowing that our pain is never wasted or in vain. When we live lives surrendered to a sovereign God who knows and sees far more, infinitely more than we do. I mean, let's be realistic. The alternative is to not see God actively at work in the midst of that pain. And as a result, that pain and suffering is really just pointless, random occurrences that mean nothing and lead nowhere. I don't know about you. I'm going to opt for the hope of a sovereign God who's working in all things. So at least one source of power for reconciliation is recognizing that God is sovereign. Joseph needed to see that God was sovereign in his circumstances if he was going to reconcile with his brothers. In all life experiences, may we see God's good coming through even evil that might befall us. But the second source that we see here in this passage, the second source of power, is found where Joseph says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Here's why that's significant. Biblical commentators, uh, they note that Joseph is using that term remnant as a way of showing that God was committed to the covenant that he had promised to Abraham. If you remember, God had promised that through the line of Abraham, there would come a great nation through his descendants. And Joseph, using that word remnant, is reminding everyone in this story that God is still committed to his promises. Right? Joseph's suffering pointed to the, the promise and covenant that God made to his uh, forebears, that there would come a nation through them that, the, that would bless the entire world. And if their line right here had died off, that nation never would have come. So Joseph is reminding them, God has preserved you because God has made a promise to us. And the reason why that is significant is because through that pain and suffering, through that remnant would come that nation, and from that nation would come the ultimate and true reconciler, the one who would reconcile all creation to himself, the one who would restore all creation to the way that God intended it to be. This entire story is driving us to see that this is not just about God uh, sustaining Joseph and his people, not just about creating a nation, Israel, but about Jesus Christ, our great reconciler coming, the one who would come through this remnant. God in Christ provides for us the ultimate picture of reconciliation. Because we in our, our sinfulness, we are the offenders who have brought great offense against God in our rejection of him as God, in our willingness to reject his will and his desires for our lives, to put other things above him, to make ourselves God. We have brought great offense to him. Yet God, the one who has ultimate authority, who, like Joseph with his brothers, has the ability to make us pay for our offenses, chooses to graciously and mercifully extend forgiveness to undeserved people. I mean, Christ humbly offers himself for the sake of those who have offended him. He mercifully does not give us what, he de what we deserve, but instead on the cross, he takes upon himself our offenses so that we might be reconciled to God. And my friends, when we realize 
the lengths to which Jesus has gone to pursue reconciliation with us, we then have a source of power to pursue reconciliation with others. I mean, if you're here and you're, uh, you're the offended one, the one who has been hurt, and you're a Christian, remember, you have been forgiven much. And as a result, we should then be a people of forgiveness. We can forgive others because we have been forgiven. And that's not to say that there is not justice that needs to be done in the midst of some very broken situations. Forgiveness, though, is something different. Forgiveness is our ability to recognize that God in Christ has forgiven us much. And so we, too, can forgive others. We have that kind of hope when we remember God's grace toward us. If you're here and you're the offended, or you're the offended, uh, you've offended others, you're the offender, you first must be willing to acknowledge your wrongdoings. Right? We've seen that time and time again. That's what, requires, what, requires, what is required in reconciliation. What we can't control, though, the extent to which others will receive our desire to reconcile, we can acknowledge the extent to which our sin, whatever that sin might have been, sent Christ to the cross. And so in response, we can keep ourselves from justifying our answers. We can be, our actions, we can be honest about the ways in which we have failed. Because when we remember the great love of God, we know that the guilt, the ultimate guilt of our sin has been taken away, placed on Jesus. And that ought to then leave us in this place of dealing honestly with our failures as a sign of how deeply we trust the gospel. And finally, for those that feel like the collateral damage, in Christ, you can have confidence that God will restore, that he will redeem all things one day when Christ returns. And while you too might not be experiencing the, whole, the, the, the fullness of reconciliation, maybe that broken relationship still exists, you can have hope. The wholeness will come when the sovereign God who's in control of all things comes to restore all things. My friends, all of this story is pointing us to the reconciliation of God in Christ. And my prayer that that would help us, give us the power to be a people of reconciliation because we live in a world that will almost always err toward that intuitive response to broken down relationships, anger, vengeance, hatred, but may we be able to be a people who show something different, be a people of grace and mercy and forgiveness, of reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I recognize um, the extent to which pursuit of reconciliation is difficult, painful, and hard. I recognize that uh, for some, the idea of being reconciled to those that have hurt us or those that we have hurt seems nearly impossible. And Lord, I, I recognize that there's some circumstances that we, we just need wisdom in how best to approach those relationships. But Lord, where there is an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, where there is a, a desire for reconciliation, Lord, we pray that you would give us the power to pursue it by remembering the work the great reconciler, our Savior, Jesus. We'd be, we would be reminded of, of how we've been reconciled to you, the extent to which Jesus has gone to take upon himself 
our failures, our sins, that we might be in full and whole relationship with you. May that encourage us, bring us joy and hope. May it also empower us to be a people of reconciliation in a world that so often has no category for that kind of wholeness. God, just give us that kind of power. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.